Welcome to The Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth, one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Mark, chapter 16, verse 1, as we follow along with today's lesson. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, oh, one, one more thing. Uh, <laughs> uh, this fellow, Dean Burgeon, a uh, tremendous scholar, uh, has written a book called The Last Twelve Verses of Mark. Extremely scholarly book in which his final conclusion is that it is genuine, it does belong there, is a part of the original text by an overwhelming amount of evidence. And, and he's written this book on the subject, more thorough and complete than any other book that's ever been written on the subject of the last 12 verses of Mark. So when the Sabbath was passed, this is the Saturday Sabbath. There seems to be an indication in the scriptures that we had two Sabbaths running concurrently. Uh, There was, of course, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. The first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a Sabbath day, according to the law. And uh, thus, it would seem that there were two concurrent Sabbaths one on Friday, one on Saturday. Uh, This is the Saturday Sabbath when it was over. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. Now in the previous chapter, we find that these are the women who were standing afar off watching the crucifixion of Jesus, verse 40, And they are the women who also followed Joseph when he took the body of Jesus and watched him as he put it in the tomb. And the stone was rolled over the door of the sepulcher. So now they are coming early in the morning, the Sabbath day, bringing sweet spices that they might come and anoint Jesus. Very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. Now, Mary Magdalene, evidently, they left to come, but she no doubt hurried ahead of the other women. She arrived at the tomb while it was still dark. She saw that the stone was rolled away and made an assumption, did not go in to find out anything, just made the assumption, seeing the stone that was rolled away, made the assumption that they had moved the body of Jesus. And so she ran to tell Peter and John that Jesus' body had been removed, had been moved by somebody. And of course, Peter and John then came running to the sepulcher. In the meantime... These other women arrived, and Mark will tell us what happened to them when they arrived, how that they saw the angel uh, sitting there uh, at the uh, place where they had laid Jesus. But 
uh, they then rushed back to tell the disciples what the angel had told them. Peter and John then arrived, uh, John outrunning Peter, but Peter ru rushing into the tomb, John waiting outside, and uh, their discovery of uh, the wrappings that were around Jesus, lying there, the fold still there, but the body gone. And uh, John immediately recognized the significance of it, that Jesus was risen indeed. They leave, and uh, Mary, who had told them, comes back now, and it is while she is there that... Uh, Weeping, sobbing, that the angel said, why are you weeping? And um, she said, because they have taken away my Lord. I don't know where they put him. And uh, she turned away, and Jesus was standing there. She thought he was the gardener. And uh, he said, woman, why weepest thou? And she said the same thing, they've taken away my Lord. So that's sort of the, uh, the way the events took place, the Gospels put them together. When you collate the whole thing, this is, this is the way the story comes out. And then Mary uh, saw Jesus, grabbed hold of him, and he said, oh, don't cling to me, Mary. Go and tell the disciples that uh, I have risen indeed. So she came to tell the disciples. So uh, these women come. Uh, while it is very early in the morning, first day of the week, that would be the Sunday, and they came to the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? Now, if you have seen some of these sepulchers over there and the stones that are in front of them, you'll understand their question. I have actually tried to push some of these stones by setting my back against the wall, my feet against it, and tried to roll it and couldn't do it. They really weigh a lot and they are really set there firmly. And so I can understand the women's question, who's going to roll away the stone? Because we are told it is great. And those are great stones that they would roll in front of the opening of the a cave in which they would bury the bodies. And so it was their concern uh, as who would roll away the stone, worried about that. You know, it, it's like so many of our worries, however, they're unnecessary, they're needless, because when they got there, they found the stone was already rolled away. So here they are going, worrying, you know, who's going to roll, and, and it's already done. Have you ever worried about something when you arrived there? It was already taken care of. All that worry, what would I worry so much for, you know? Wasted all the energy worrying, you know? And here the Lord's gone before me and taking care of things before I ever got there. But I was sure worried about it and, you know, and spent a lot of uh, mental <laughs> energy in worry that was totally needless. And so is their case. But when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away for it was very great. Now, in the last chapter, we find the chapter ending with Joseph taking the body of Jesus and wrapping it in fine linen and putting it in the sepulcher and rolling the stone to the door of the sepulcher. 
And behind that stone, there in the sepulcher, laid the body of Jesus. There lay there a dead concept of God. You see, Jesus had come to reveal God unto man. God, who at sundry times and in diverse ways spoke to our fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his own dear Son, God's revelation. He said, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. What did he reveal to us about the Father? That the Father has tremendous concern for you because he loves you. He wants to provide for you, take care of you. He watches over you. He's concerned with every even minor detail about your life. Far more than what you even dream or realize because of his intense love for you. And so he brought to man this concept of a God of love, not of wrath, not of judgment, but a God who loves his creation. Not a God who is far removed from his creation, but a God who is infinitely involved in his creation. But man rejected that concept of God. And when you look at the cross and the events of the cross, you find everything but love. You find the viciousness of man, the hatred of man, venom being poured out upon the Savior as they nailed him to the cross, as they mocked him as he died, and as Joseph took and wrapped him in linen and put him in the tomb and rolled the stone over the door, Behind the stone there lay a dead concept of God, rejected by man. Behind the stone there actually lay a dead religion. True, it is unlike any other religion, but it is and does have the aspects of a religion for it does speak of God and man's approach to God. And it speaks of the faith by which man is to come to God. But so unlike most religions, religions that have man reaching out to God, this is a religion that tells us that God was reaching out to man. That Finite man could never reach God, starting with an earth base. But an infinite God reached down to finite man, and God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Unlike religions which give you the regulations and the rules whereby you might please God by your efforts and by your works, this is a religion that says that by your best efforts, you can never please God. You have to be born again. 
you have to have the infusion of a new life, a spiritual life. But man rejected that religion. He will continue by his own works, as rotten or feeble as they might be, to try to appease a God of wrath and try to reach, if possible, this infinite God. And there he lays. And behind that stone, there is a dead hope. The disciples during the ministry of Christ were extremely excited. They knew the prophecies concerning the Messiah and the kingdom of God that was going to be set up upon the earth. They knew that there was going to be a time when earth, when the earth would experience true peace, that they would beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. They would study war no more. They had hoped that that kingdom was going to be set up now. That they would be able to raise their children in peace. And that the glory of the Lord would cover the earth. But he was crucified. And they placed him in the tomb and they rolled a, they rolled the stone over the door of the tomb and behind that stone, a dead hope. The disciples on the road to Emmaus said, we had hoped that in him was the salvation of Israel. But they put it sort of in the past tense. But they crucified him, and this is the third day. Hope is dashed. Now, what does it mean? The stone is rolled away from the door of the sepulcher. <laughs> it means just this. The concept of God is not dead, it is true. He is a loving God. He is concerned with you, deeply concerned with you, and with every facet of your life. It means that the religion is not dead, it's alive. That though man cannot reach God by his own efforts, God has reached down to man and provided a way whereby man can have the forgiveness of sins and whereby man can come into fellowship with the eternal God through the sacrifice of his son. It means that you can know God and fellowship with God just as he declared by faith and trusting in him. It means that the hope is alive. So Peter said, oh, thank God that we have a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, of an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away, that's reserved in heaven for you who are being kept by the power of God through faith. Oh, I'll tell you what. What a new view this gives of the cross. As we look now at the cross through the open tomb, it gives us a whole new perspective. You see, before the stone was rolled back, the cross was a horrible miscarriage of man's inhumanity against man, sort of a classic example of how heartless and cruel man can be. 
a terrible tragedy that the Son of God should be hanged. But now we look at the cross with a whole different view. We see it not as defeat, but we see it as glorious victory. God wasn't defeated. Satan was defeated there at the cross. His power over your life was defeated in the cross of Jesus Christ, for he spoiled the principalities and the powers that are against us, making an open display of his victory as he triumphed over them through the cross. And so it gives us a whole different view of the cross. <laughs> Rather than being a great tragedy, it's God's love demonstrated in a very visible way to man. Oh, I like that verse. That the stone was rolled away. <laughs> what a difference it makes. And so they entering into the sepulcher saw a young man sitting on the right side, obviously an angel. And he was clothed in a long white garment, and they were frightened. And he said unto them, Don't be afraid. You're seeking Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified, but he is risen. He's not here. Behold the place where they laid him. And then he said, But go your way and tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee, and there you will see him even as he said unto you. Note, go and tell the disciples and Peter. Peter probably figured that the Lord never wanted to have anything to do with him again. You know how you feel when you've really blown it big time? How you feel when you've really failed the Lord? Like he's through with me. He never wants anything to do with me again. I don't blame him. I failed him in that time of crisis, in that I, I let him down, and you know, and all of that guilt that Peter was feeling. So the Lord puts a little, go tell Aunt Peter. Let him know. The door isn't closed. There's forgiveness. There's understanding. There's compassion. There's love. Go tell the disciples and Peter. And so they went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher. And they were trembling and they were amazed. And neither said they anything to any man because they were so afraid. Now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Now this is confirmed in the other Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, which tells us of this appearance to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. Can you imagine what her life was before she met Jesus? A life of torment, a life of bondage. Her life was a living hell, possessed by seven evil spirits, which Jesus cast out and set her free. Don't you know as Jesus said, he who is forgiven much loves much. 
Don't you know that she had a love for Jesus that is incomparable? I mean, this man delivered me out of hell. This man set me free. This man gave me life. And from that time, she followed him. She stayed close by him. She was standing there when he was crucified. She followed when they took him to the tomb. And she's probably the first one to arrive at the tomb. And seeing the stone rolled away, ran to tell Peter. But then when she came back, then she met Jesus, the first one to see the risen Lord. There's something sort of tender and special about that. John again tells us how that she grasped him. I think a death grip, like someone who was drowning and suddenly the Savior is there who she thought she had lost. And I think it was a grip that says, you may have gotten away from me once, but I'll never let you go again. And so Jesus said, Mary, don't cling to me. But go and tell the disciples, I've risen indeed. And thus, this woman, Mary Magdalene, became the first commissioned witness of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so she went and told them that had been with him, that is, the disciples, as they were mourning and weeping. Now, here we are the third day. And Jesus said to them over and over again, they're going to crucify me. But the third day I will rise again. Now, not that I feel I'm better than the disciples. Far from that. I, I wish I was somewhere even close, but I don't even feel that. But somehow, I think that had Jesus said over and over again, they're going to crucify me, but the third day I'll rise again. I think that on the third day I'd be looking for something. I, I think I would sort of be waiting and say, well, let's see, you know, this third day. Let's go check things out. Let, let's see what's happened. But rather than being in expectancy and in anticipation of the resurrection, they were weeping, they were mourning. As far as they were concerned, it's all over. It's all over. And here Mary shows up, and can you imagine how excited she must be? I mean, I'll bet you she had a hard time getting the words out. The excitement, the thrill. The, I've seen him. I've seen him. He's alive. He's alive. And it's, calm down. Come on. What, what are you trying to tell us, Mary? And, and it was probably that she was so excited and, and all that they, they thought, oh, she's flipped, you know. <laughs> you remember when Peter was thrown in jail after James was beheaded by Herod and he saw it pleased the Jews, so he threw Peter in jail, intending to bring him forth the next day and execute him. And uh, that night the angel of the Lord delivered Peter. But the church, you remember, had gone to prayer, praying for Peter. And, and the angel delivered Peter out of the prison and he went to the house where the church was praying. He knocked on the door 
And the young maid, Rhoda, came to the door and said, who is it? Peter, let me in. And she ran back to the prayer meeting and said, Peter's at the door. They said, you're crazy. You've seen a ghost, you know. <laughs> and he kept knocking until they finally said, well, somebody better answer it. And, and, and Peter was there. And, and so, uh, you know, our faith, you see, they were praying for Peter's release, but surely not with faith because <laughs> they didn't believe it when it happened. And how many times have we been surprised that God answered our prayers just by his sovereign grace and love? Not, you know, not anything to the credit of my great faith, but just God's sovereign grace. And so here are the disciples. And again, the witness of a woman they wouldn't accept. You see, in those days, women didn't have many rights and they could not testify in court. They wouldn't accept the word of a woman. So Jesus commissioned Mary to go tell them, but they didn't listen. They were still mourning and weeping. They should be rejoicing, but that's what unbelief will do. It'll keep you in tears. It'll keep you in agony. It'll keep you in despair and misery when you should be rejoicing. God is going to take care of it. And many times God is already taking care of it while you're still mourning and you're still reaping and your unbelief keeps you from entering into the joy of God's victory and of God's work. And so God has done it. He has raised him from the dead. But they can't enter into the joy because of unbelief. After that, he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. Luke expounds on this. He tells us that Cleopas and one of the other disciples were on the road to Emmaus when Jesus joined them. And we'll get that in the Gospel of Luke. And they mentioned to Jesus. Now, in another form, they didn't recognize him. Uh, even as Mary didn't recognize him at first. Uh, just what implications are here are something that uh, you'll have to draw for yourself. I'm not qualified to make implications, but uh, he appeared in another form. They were obviously very sad because he questioned them, how come you're so sad? And they told them the story that he knew so well how that Jesus was crucified and this was the third day. And they even mentioned, and some of the women said that they saw him because after he appeared to Mary, he appeared to those other women. And it's interesting to me that as they came to Emmaus and Jesus w was acting like he's just going to keep walking, and they said, oh, no, it's getting late. Come and, and stay with us. And when he broke the bread, they recognized him. How? Perhaps they saw the nail-pierced hands as he broke the bread. And immediately he disappeared. But then they started talking. Did not our hearts burn in us as he spoke with us in the way? So they went 
That is, the two came back and told it to the residue. But neither believed they them. That is, you see, you can't blame them for being prejudiced against women completely because when these two guys came back, they didn't believe them either. Unbelief, oh my, what does it take to dispel the doubt and the unbelief of the human heart? What does it take? What does it take for God to dispel the unbelief in your heart? Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they were sitting at meat, and he upbraided them, or he rebuked, or he scolded them with their unbelief and their hardness of heart. Now, he had done that to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Oh, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. And so he upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. Really <laughs> scolded them for that. And he said unto them, and now the commission that we have in Matthew, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The commission to the church to carry the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. And he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And he that believeth not shall be damned. It's just that clear cut. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. Don't believe in him, and you'll be damned. The Bible says, He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And these are the signs which will follow them that believe. In my name they will cast out devils. They will speak with new tongues they shall take up serpents and if they drink any deadly thing it shall not hurt them they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover now <laughs> there are those who have taken this passage of scripture and abused it uh, in some radical groups uh, there are those that are known as snake handlers. And when they get in a meeting and they are worked up into a real frenzy, they will begin to pass rattlesnakes around the circle uh, to demonstrate their faith. And using this scripture, they shall take up serpents and they... Uh, and that's the basis for this snake handling practice. I am reminded of the temptation of Jesus by Satan when he took him up to the pinnacle of the temple and said, Jump, for it is written, He will give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways, to bear thee up, lest at any time you dash your foot against a stone. But Jesus answered and said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And any just deliberate taking up of serpents to prove your faith 
is tempting God. Same is true of drinking any deadly thing. It shall not harm them. Uh, To deliberately drink uh, cyanide or arsenic uh, to prove your faith is tempting God. And, And it is not intended that this should be done. Now, note that these things were to be done in the context of carrying the gospel into all the world. And in the records of the missionaries, in carrying the gospel into all the world, we find accounts so many times where missionaries were bitten by some deadly snake without any ill effect. At times when missionaries had to drink swamp water filled with uh, all kinds of vermin and disease and did not have any ill effect. We remember the case of Paul the Apostle when he was shipwrecked and cast up on the shore and they were gathering wood to make a fire to warm themselves and sort of dry themselves off from their experience in the surf. And how that as Paul was gathering some wood and throwing it in the fire, this poisonous viper fastened itself on Paul. And the natives of the island said, Oh, he must be a horrible murderer because even though he escaped uh, the, the storm and the surf, yet the gods will not allow him to live. And, and they were waiting. They knew that deadly viper. They knew that the person only had just a few minutes and they would go into convulsions and die. And so they were watching, waiting for him to start into the convulsions and, and to die. But he just shook the thing off in the fire. And, and uh, you know, so after a while when he didn't go into convulsions and all, they said, he must be a god. You know, it didn't affect him. But, you see, that was in the context of carrying the gospel into all the world. And I believe that as we carry the gospel into all the world, that if we, by happenstance, are bitten by a poisonous viper, that you can take this as a promise of God. If you're forced to drink out of necessity... Water that you know to be polluted, you can ask God to bless it. And I don't think any harmful effects will come. But that's in the context of carrying the gospel. and all. It isn't in a, going out and testing faith. Like one minister took a thing of poison around to his congregation and had them all drink it to show their faith. I mean, you know, we don't want any faithless people in our church. And he lost a few. Uh, <laughs> He was charged with manslaughter, and rightfully so. Uh, But uh, it it isn't something that we're just to to foolhardily step out on and say, well, you know, he'll give his angels charge over me. Watch me sail off this 12-story building, you know. Uh, And and when Satan suggested that, Jesus rejected it as, as tempting God, putting yourself in deliberate jeopardy just to try and prove a passage of Scripture or your faith in a passage of Scripture. So the book of Mark ends in a very beautiful way. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God, where he is today. 
seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for us. He who is ascended is the same one who first of all descended in the lower parts of the earth. When he ascended, he led the captives from their captivity. When Stephen was being stoned, he said, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. Here he says he's up there seated at the right hand. Uh, Paul in Ephesians tells us that he is seated in the heavenly places far above all principalities and powers. But the story is that whenever a martyr is coming home, he stands to receive him. And so Stephen saw him standing there, ready to receive him into glory. And, and, and Stephen said, Lord, receive my spirit. Luke's gospel and the book of Acts tells us a little more fully concerning uh, the, the ascension of Christ into heaven. And uh, we'll cover that when we get to Luke and uh, to the book of Acts. Again, we told you that Mark is an abbreviated account. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. So be it. End of story. So they went everywhere preaching the word. The Lord working with them, confirming the word with signs following. I believe that's the correct order. I don't believe that God intends that signs be the primary draw for the church. That we try to draw people with signs to prove some kind of spectacular powers. I believe that there is power in the Word of God to bring conversion. And the signs follow. Thus, the faith is not in the signs, but the faith is established in the Word of God. I think it's a very dangerous thing to establish one's faith in signs that they have seen. Because there are many times that there are charlatans who are showing signs, and if you believe because I saw that man who had an oxygen tank, and he took the thing off and he ran up and down the aisles, and, and you believe because you saw that apparent miracle when he was prayed for, they just pulled the oxygen mask off and the guy ran up and down the aisle. And you say, I saw it. And thus I believe because I saw that. Then when you find out later that the guy really didn't need the oxygen tank, it was all set up, you see, what does that do to your faith? But if your faith is established in God's word, then it's unshakable. Because you see, you may see a genuine sign that will bring faith in a sense. But the next time, the person may not be healed. My faith is not in what I have seen God do as far as 
healing the sick. My faith is in the word of God. And thus, it's not a variable. It's established. It's strong. You can't put faith in feelings, which again are sort of a sign. Oh, I felt warm all over. Oh, I felt tingly all over. Oh, I felt, you know, just bubbly all over. But maybe tomorrow you're going to feel rotten all over. (laughs) And so you don't put faith in feeling. You put faith in fact, the fact of God's word that is true, the word of God that changes not. And when your faith is established in the word of God, it is unwavering, it's unshakable. Signs follow, great, wonderful. But don't put your faith in the signs. Put your faith in the word. Let's turn now to Luke's gospel, chapter one, as we begin now the gospel according to Luke. And once again, let me exhort you to start reading through the whole Bible. Great opportunity to start in the gospel of Luke and join with us as we study uh, through the entire Bible. So at least go through Luke. See if you don't just sort of get the habit and begin to really enjoy it as you go through the whole Bible. Luke is called by Paul the beloved physician. It is interesting that in the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, that when Paul was in Troas, and received the call to go to Macedonia is the time when Luke joined Paul's company. And in writing the book of Acts, he begins in that chapter to use the personal pronoun, we, then, uh, went over to Macedonia. It is also interesting that while Paul was in Troas, he was very sick. He mentions how uh, that uh, he was quite ill and it is quite possible that Luke was the physician that was called to minister to Paul. Now, in those days, interestingly enough, most physicians were slaves and uh, they served rich patrons. And it is thought that perhaps Theophilus was Luke's former master, who released Luke then to travel with Paul and journey with Paul so that Paul had his personal physician traveling with him in the work of the gospel. Luke addresses both the gospel according to Luke and the uh, book of Acts to this man, Theophilus, a Greek name which means lover of God. And thus, Theophilus being a Greek, the gospel is sort of sent to the Gentiles. It gives you sort of a Gentile view. Uh, As, uh, of course, the author was a Gentile and uh, the only New Testament writer who was not a Jew. So 
he gives us a, a great insight and he gives us special stories that are not found in the other gospels. Uh, he gives us the story of the rich man uh, and Lazarus. He gives us the story of uh, the prodigal son and uh, beautiful stories that we don't find in the other gospel are incorporated here in the gospel according to Luke. Uh, so uh, great uh, presentation of Jesus Christ after very careful research on the part of Luke. Uh, it's interesting that he uses medical terms for some of the illnesses. Uh, that's just a part of his profession as a physician. So uh, he begins his gospel as he is writing to this man Theophilus and he said for as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us even as they delivered them unto us which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things, from the very first, to write unto thee in order, setting things out in an orderly way, most excellent Theophilus, that you might know the certainty of those things wherein you have been instructed. So Theophilus was instructed in the gospel, but this is now to confirm it and to let him know for certainty these things that happened. Now, Luke actually uh, interviewed the eyewitnesses. Uh, he questioned them concerning the things. And it's interesting that he begins his gospel with the announcement to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, uh, which we do not have in the other gospels. He tells us of the visit of the angel Gabriel to Mary, which we do not have in the other Gospels. So the first chapter of Luke is really an insight to the background of the birth of Christ not given to us in the other Gospels. And in that sense, it becomes very interesting to us. It is thought and is no doubt true that Luke actually interviewed Mary and got the story directly from Mary of her visit to Elizabeth because of the details of what was said and the reactions between them and all, that he probably interviewed Mary herself to get her account of uh, the announcement of the angel to her and of the events prior to the birth of Jesus Christ. So, he is now wanting to assure Theophilus of the truth of these things that he had been taught uh, by giving him eyewitness accounts. Others had set forth the story of the life of Christ, Mark, Matthew, and of course, no doubt, many others. Uh, John wrote later on, but uh, there were many accounts, partial accounts of the story of Jesus Christ, so Luke wants to set it out 
for Theophilus in an orderly fashion. So there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, and Luke is very careful to give us the timing of the events. In chapter 3, he gives several different um, uh It was the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee. His brother Philip, the tetrarch of Idaria and of the region of Trachonitis and Lysanias and the tetrarch of Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests when the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. So he gives you all of these uh, reference points historically uh, that give you the the exact timing and, and sets historically the timing of the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist. So we are able then to give with great exactness uh, the 15th year uh, of uh, Tiberius Caesar so we know with exactness when John the Baptist began his ministry. So there was in the days of Herod, king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias. He was of the course or the family of Abia, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron. Now it was thought especially beneficial if the priest would marry into the family of Levi. In other words, that his wife uh, was also a Levite uh, or from the tribe of Levi, and her name was Elizabeth. She was one of the daughters of Aaron. That is, she could trace her genealogy back to Aaron, uh, the uh, brother of Moses. They were both righteous before God, godly couple, They were walking in the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord. They were blameless, just a good, godly couple. But they had a great problem in that culture, considered a cultural curse. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both now well-stricken with years. The word well-stricken literally is bent over, that is, Uh, As in the case of osteoporosis, when a person becomes old, sometimes they get bent over. And so uh, they were bent over with the years. And it came to pass, while he was executing the priest's office before God in the order of his course. Now in those days, there were 20,000 priests, Levites, Naturally, they could not all serve in the temple at the same time. So they set them out in courses. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Luke on our next broadcast. As Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on Zacharias the priest. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Mark 16 through Luke 1 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. 
Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, we thank you again for your word all. A lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. A cleansing of our soul and spirit. Lord, we pray that we might hide thy word away in our hearts, that we would not sin against you. Establish, Lord, our lives in the word and in you. And Lord, we thank you for the signs that do follow. We thank you for those confirming things that come. But Lord, our faith is in you and in the word that you have declared. For though heaven and earth may pass away, we know that your word is going to abide forever. And so, Lord, thank you for your word and the opportunity of studying the word that we might grow thereby. Bless, Lord, our study. Make us diligent students that we might indeed learn of thee. In Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord be with you, bless and keep you in his love, and cause you to abound in your love for him. And may he cause your faith to increase and grow. In Jesus' name. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. As I look around for a godly example of what a Christian woman should be, I see a lot of women who are concerned about what they look like. But rarely do I see a woman who desires the reflection of Jesus Christ. For this very reason, Kay Smith has written a book for women entitled Reflecting God. Kay teaches women godly attributes, such as how to be joyful when things aren't going so great, or how to be sincere when praying for others, or inspiring them, or how to nurture and influence the people God has placed around you. As Kay teaches God's attributes, women will begin to have the mind of Christ. And as this starts to happen within you, outwardly you will become a reflection of God to a world that desperately needs Him. For more information on how to order the book Reflecting God by Kay Smith, as well as an optional study guide to lead a women's Bible study, Visit thewordfortoday.org to see a preview of this book or call us at 800-272-WORD.